So the greatest joy you have during this time, you know, is you get to hear different speakers. Three of us are are your uh, deacons that will be preaching, and so today's Greg's turn. Oh, yeah, the kids, uh, what three to five, can be dismissed for junior church. Yep, and we have clipboards for the four to four. Yeah, six to nine. That makes more sense. Yeah. All right, so we're in. I'm going to speak from Psalm 139 today. And uh, what was my inspiration for Psalm 139? Well, today is my birthday. My wife's like, "Hey, you should preach Psalm 139." And I, I read through it, and I was like, "Okay." You know, there's uh, several verses in there about being formed in your mother's womb, and I think that's what she had in mind. There's a lot of other verses in there, too. (laughs) So, 24 to be exact, so I should get moving. All right, so you'll notice in the very beginning of 139 there, it says, To the choir master of Psalm of David. So this was written by David, who Josh preached on the last... Not last week, but the two weeks prior to that, right? Um, But this was meant to be sung. And uh, Dan Stanley, who was here last week, mentioned, hey, you guys should sing more psalms, right? That's sort of what he's pointing at. This is, these were written, this was written by David, intended to be sung. I'm not going to attempt to sing it for you today. You should be grateful for that. But we're going to, it's sort of broken up into... It's about four different sections. Um, You know, you have the first six verses talk about the omniscience of God, right? So when we say omniscience, we look at what's the root words there. We have omni, which encompasses all, and then we have science, which would be knowledge, right? So that word tells us God has complete knowledge. And in the first six verses, we have a description of what that looks like. And starting out there, I want, there was a good quote from A.W. Tozer that I think gives some perspective to omniscience. And he says, God has never learned from anyone, and God cannot learn. Which is, God can't learn? There's something God can't do, right? He already knows everything. All there is to be is complete knowledge. If he could learn something, he wouldn't be God, right? He, has, he knows all things. Complete knowledge. So I like that statement, God cannot learn. Starting out in verse 1. I'm going to read 1 through 6, and then we'll work through those verses. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold... O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So we go back to verse 1. And depending on what your translation, I have, I'm working out of the ESV. One of the things the ESV does is you may notice that very first word, O Lord, is all in caps. And Maybe some of you know why that is, and maybe y'all have wondered, well, why is Lord all caps there? So that is the Tetragrammaton. Um, It is the personal name of the true and living God, known 
by the Israelites as Yahweh. And when they would write out Yahweh, they would leave the vowels out because they didn't want to say the name, personal name of God out loud because it just it didn't seem right to them. So when you see, O Lord, in your scriptures, that's what it's pointing towards. This is the personal name of God. And so that's how David is approaching this. He is approaching God personally. But it says, you have searched me and known me. And so the very first thing that I see there is it says searched. Well, if God already knows everything, what's he have to search me for? It's like he has to go find something, right? And so I think that is pointing towards God. Nothing can be hidden from God. It is, he, he fully penetrates. He knows every corner. Um, all is laid bare before him. But it says, and you know me, right? As we study scripture in the Old Testament, there are instances of talks about Adam knew his wife. Well, when Adam knew his wife, what happened? They had a son, right? It's a personal, intimate knowledge. So, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know the deep depths of me. And it's an intimate knowledge. It's not an acquaintance. It is a personal intimate knowledge. And I I thought it was interesting. So David, this is King David, and Proverbs 25 verse 3 says, as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Right? So to the common man, the heart of the king is unsearchable. The common man can't know all the thoughts that are tied up in the king's head. And yet God knows David intimately. He has that depth of knowledge of David. Um, And Jeremiah 12.3 says, But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. And and that's sort of the concept of the searching is this this testing of the heart, this depth of knowledge. Um, But pointing towards this omniscience of God, him knowing all. And he knows us personally. In verse 2 it says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. And you can't be sneaky with God, right? You're not going to, like, well, I'm going to sneak out and do this, and I'm going to... Who personally knows when you sit down and when you rise up? Maybe your spouse, you know, somebody who lives with you. But to the rest of the general public, they don't know your comings and goings. Not to a T. And yet God does. And it even says, you discern my thoughts from afar, right? Which, I was like, okay. So then we get into the next section of verses after this, and we learn that God is present everywhere. Well, how is God afar from us, right? And I think it's pointing towards God knowing you, knowing your thoughts. It's so simple for him. It's like he's... He's not even there, and yet he knows your thoughts, right? But he is there. He is personally there. But this is the, the simplicity of it for him. It is not a challenge. He doesn't have to work at it. It is natural. Um, there is a similar phraseology in 2 Kings 9, 20, 19, verse 27, addressing the king of Assyria and it says but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me right so the king of Assyria is this super powerful guy 
he is very threatening to the Israelites and is addressed, I know everything about you. you, you you're not sneaky. You're not getting away with anything. Um, and it is easy for God. It comes naturally. It is part of his nature. Um, in the verse... Three, it says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. We have the, the similar phrase from the previous verse, you know, that talked about sitting down and rising up. But this talks about my lying down, acquainted with all my ways. It was interesting looking at different translations. You know, I said I'm in the ESV. In the, in the New American Standard Version, it says, you search. Um... In that you search, it says you scrutinize, you examine or inspect closely. There was even a note there about winnowing, you know, judging. So when they winnow, they are separating the good bits of the wheat from the bad pieces, right? They're examining, there's a judgment happening. So that searching is there's a judgment happening. Um, The NIV uses the word discern. And if you go, if you look in the book of Job, it talks a lot about God numbering his steps. Like, yeah, have you tried to number your steps? We have these, we have these fancy little watches nowadays that number your steps, right? Well, when I get on my lawnmower and I zip around my yard, it thinks I just ran 12 miles. It has no idea. Um, But God knows. He numbers your steps. He knows where you've been. He knows what you're doing. And that being acquainted with all my ways, the, the American Standard says, you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. It's not just a simple, yeah, I have an acquaintance with what you're doing. I have a pretty good idea. No, it's intimate. There is a depth of knowledge there. But you think of how many people do we have in the world today? I, as three, four billion more? I, I don't know. God knows every single one of them, every single one of their steps, and he knows it intimately. It is not an acquaintance. And then I, I like verse 4. It says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So before I even say anything, he knows my thoughts. He knows what I'm going to say um, before I even speak them. Sometimes I don't even know what I'm going to say. I open my mouth and sometimes nonsense comes out because my mouth works faster than my brain. Um, Josh can attest to that. But God knows my thoughts before I even speak them. And then verse 5, it says, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And so what's it mean to be hemmed in, right? Some of you here are sewers. And so when you hem something, you are taking Two pieces of fabric, you may be folding over one piece of fabric and sewing, or you may be taking two and putting them together. But I think you get this idea of a garment. And it talks in some of the other scriptures about surrounding. You go to other passages that have similar language, and it talks about the mountains surrounding places. But you get this idea of God has surrounded you, right? He is everywhere. 
And that's, it points to that when it says behind and before. Um, but then it says you lay your hand upon me, right? And this is not laying your hand upon them as in he's going to do violence upon you. And I also don't get the picture that it is like God wraps you up like a warm, fuzzy blanket either. You know, he's not hemming you in and like tucking you in gently, right? It is, he has fully surrounded you. Because you, you have God's hand, which is at times used, there's blessing. And then you even have, look, read through the book of Job. And God uses suffering on us as well sometimes to direct our steps. Um, but through it all, God is present. And he is working. And he's surrounding us. And that is to be our comfort in times of trial. And also remember that when things are easy. So verse 6 is a reflection on the previous five verses. It says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Right? I tried to explain to you the first five verses, and I, let's, at the end of the day, I have probably not done justice to what God is truly like, but I've tried. Um, but he's pointing to, it's too wonderful. You think that God knows all things he is everywhere. And how do we even really understand that, right? We, I don't know anybody in my life that knows everything about me. Even my wife doesn't know every single thing. She doesn't know every single thought. She knows me the best of anybody, but she is not all-knowing of me. And Paul points to this in Romans 11.33, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Right? God's, when you sit and meditate upon the knowledge of God, it is a wonderful thing. Um, Just the depth of it. It just continues. And Colossians tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. All these amazing things, all this knowledge, Christ has that. And how amazing. Um, I, I like at times to go to Job, in the end of Job, especially during difficulty. But Job, it's in chapter 42, but it's sort of the whole statement begins in chapter 38 of Job, where God comes to Job and says, I'm going to address me like a man, Job, all right? And God presents God with who he is as revealed in creation. It goes on like chapter 38 all the way up until chapter 42. But then you get Job's response in chapter 42, and he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Right? So Job, who is complaining about how terrible things are, and granted, things are terrible for Job, but when he's presented with who God truly is, he says, I've uttered things what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Right? Like when I, when I grasp who God is, it's... Who am I? Right? This is too wonderful. It is beyond human capabilities of fully understanding the omniscience of God. But it should be a great comfort to us. Right? It is wonderful. So 
So then we go into verses 7 through 12, which deal with the omnipresence of God, right? Omni, once again, meaning all, and we have presence, being present everywhere at the same time, right? Which is another concept which is amazing to think upon. So verses 7 through 12, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So back to verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Right? It is impossible to escape God. You cannot go anywhere that God is not. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24, he poses a rhetorical question. It says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. Right? You think you're going to go hide somewhere and God's not going to find you. Well, God is, he fills the heavens and he fills the earth. Um, I thought there was some irony. If you go to think upon the story of Jonah, you go to Jonah chapter 1 verse 3. And it says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Right? Like Kind of silly that Jonah thought he could escape God, and ultimately Jonah realizes there was no escape, right? He, he ultimately becomes thrown into the sea and swallowed by a great fish, and then goes to Nineveh. He goes a long way, but he wants to flee from the presence of the Lord, and he comes to the very intimate knowledge that that is not possible, In verse 8 it says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I just read that passage in Jeremiah about God filling the heavens and the earth. Um, And so there's an interesting thing going on here in verses 8 and verses 9, where you're sort of covering all the dimensions, right? Highest of heights, deepest of depths. Ascending to heaven. What's the highest thing you can think of? It'd be heaven. It says, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, right? So Sheol would be the Hebrew word that is for hell, right? The <coughs> deepest of depths. You are there. And in Amos chapter 9, verse 2, it says, If they dig to Sheol, now this is about the judgment of Israel. God is going to judge Israel. But he says, if they dig to Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. He, God is highest of heights, deepest of depths. He is in all places, and he is able to go there and reach you there. You cannot hide. Verse 9 says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. I'm like, oh, what in the world does that mean? Um... And what I've come across was this is following the track of the sun from 
rising in the east, setting in the west. You know, I take the wings of the morning, so the sun rises in the east, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. So from Israel, the sun sets into the Mediterranean Sea. It appears to go as far into the sea as you can see. Right, so this is the from from the author's perspective. This is as far east as you can get, and as far west as you can get. And yet, in verse ten, it says, "Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me." So he's covering the furthest extents that he can think of, even the farthest place the psalmist can imagine. God is there. And it, it draw, drew to mind Isaiah 41, verse 10, which says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So God is there, and he is with them, even in times of difficulty, no matter how, how far removed from their comfort. And that thought of God's right hand, right? Just, I'm up, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Well, the majority of us are right-handed. I know some people in my family that are left-handed. But in general, your dominant hand is your stronger hand, right? So this, the common thing is to be right-handed. So God's right hand is his strongest hand. He's not going to uphold you with his weak hand. He's going to uphold you with his strongest hand. You get God's best. And it's not that God has a weak hand either. Both of his hands would be equally strong at holding you up. In verse 11 and 12 it says, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. When you watch the news, when do most terrible things happen, right? It's usually murders happen in the dark, robberies happen in the dark, right? We, evil deeds tend to be done in the dark because people think they won't be seen. They have a greater chance of getting away with it. Um, they feel nobody will watch them. But this tells us, even the darkness is not dark to you, right? Remember... Go back to Genesis chapter 1, right? God says, let there be light. He created light. He has authority over the light and the dark. He is not constrained by lightness and darkness. Um, and in 1 John 1, 5, it talks about that God is light, right? The lightness and darkness is of no consequence to him. Even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. He is not, God is not constrained like we are. He is not a human that he has to deal with lightness and darkness. All is apparent to him. And we get into verse 12. Oh, I just did verse 12. Into verse 13 here. Verses 13 through 18, we have... We see the omnipotence of God. His power is all-consuming. And it's interesting the topic he chooses to use to describe God's power is not 
like this display of like superior strength and power, but it is he goes to like the little baby in the womb and how amazing creation is. Verses 13 through 18 say, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. You see, There's a transition from 12 to 13. In, in 11 and 12, he was talking about darkness, and then going into the following phrases, in the following verses there, you know, Verse 15 talks about being made in secret, right? So the, the child being formed in the womb, we have the ability to look into the womb these days with technology that's been invented, and we can see that child in there. We can see them developing and growing. They didn't have that ability in David's time. It remained a mystery. They did not know what was being formed. Well, they knew what was being formed, but they couldn't witness it happening. They couldn't see this little child moving around. Um, But you have that theme of darkness that carries in. And you're made in the darkness of your mother's womb. And it says that God formed, that he knitted. It was a, he was personally active in it. And it, it, let's see, when it talks about being knitted together, some of the other translations actually said like inward parts um, translates as kidneys, like your internal organs, like God is intricately involved in the making of this little baby's tiny organs, right? We have such amazing abilities to do medical things today. We can't make a kidney. We can't just put one together. Um, And yet God is forming this in that little baby in the womb. In verse 14 it says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. When you sit and think upon the child being growing inside the womb, it is a wonderful and amazing thing. And when it is your own child, you appreciate it even more. Um, and he says, for I am fearfully made. Is, there is great reverence being brought. He is full of wonder. Um, this causes, just to think upon it, is just an amazing thing. And it points to how amazing God is that he is doing this thing. And it causes him to say, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. We know within us just how amazing this thing is, right? 
and it's it's undeniable. Is people know what is in the womb. We know that it is a person. We cannot deny it. In verse fifteen, he says, "My frame was not hidden from you." Frame pointing towards the bones that are being formed in that little baby. Um, it says, "When I was being made in secret, in the unseen, right? You you can't see in there. It's made in secret. We can't see inside that womb, or David couldn't. We possess the ability to look in there now." And he talks about he's intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Well, our babies made like down underneath the surface of the earth in the crust, and somehow they get up here. Like, what's going on there? Well, I think it's pointing towards the the womb is such a hidden place that it might as well be in the depths of the earth, right? He couldn't see in there. It might as well be miles under the ground, as far as he's concerned, because he can't he can't see into it. Um, it is, is a figurative description of the womb. Uh, verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Which is an interesting thing to think through, right? Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days of my life before they even occurred. Right? We talk about in abortion debates like, well, when does personhood happen? Right? When does when is this little baby growing in the womb? When does it really become a person? You know, and you get all kinds of arguments. Well, this is telling us you were known to God before that process even started. Well, if you're known to God before it started, it would gather that as soon as that Egg, as soon as that ovum and the sperm come together, those two are now that person. That journey has begun of becoming, developing into what we know as that person, but that God knows them before that even started. That is now a person. Um, and he's sovereignly ordained your days before you were even conceived. You were known by God before. Sometimes my son's like, he'll be looking through our wedding pictures and he'll be like, Daddy, where, where was I? Why am I not here? Like, well, you weren't born yet. He's like, well, where was I? Like, well, God knew you. This, this tells me God knew him before he was ever formed. God knew him. Um, which is just an amazing thing, the curiosity of a child that points us to that. Um, and this should also, so we have, we can look at this and it points towards the beginning of life. And I think where it says, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. We can also look at that and say, okay, well, I will not die before God says it is time for me to die. He has ordained every day of my life. I do not need to walk around worrying about when I'm going to die because God is in control of it. He knows all things. He, I trust him with that. And sometimes it's easier than others, right? Um, 
but we should take comfort in that, knowing that he has ordained that. And if you are still here, it is by God's will. And when you go, it is by God's will. verse 17 says how precious to me are your thoughts O god how vast is the sum of them and it's interesting in the previous verses verse 6 said your knowledge is such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high i cannot attain it and then verse 17 says how precious to me are your thoughts O god well he just said earlier like i can't even understand it well the things i do understand are so amazing. They're so precious. And how do we know the thoughts of God? Right? Is, I can't go to God's mind. We have his word. And that's how we know God's thoughts. And how vast is the sum of them? What we have written is not the extent of God's thoughts. This is what we have that he has revealed to us. But we, we cannot capture the mind of God entirely right it cannot be put in a book but what we have is what he has revealed to us and through that it is enough to know him and how precious is that right but it is not all knowable to us and it says in verse 18 if i would count them they are more than the sand i awake and i am still with you but that if i could if i would count them they are more than the sand, right? And then there's other passages that came to mind when, when God promises Abraham that he, about his descendants. He says, they'll be more than the sands on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky, right? Well, and we have a similar illustration here of just the vastness, the greatness. Like, you ever sit down and try to count stars? Good luck. You want to go to the beach and count the sand? Have fun with that. There's more beaches after you get done with this one, and I don't think you're going to... If you go to Barcelona and try to count the sand, I don't think you will accomplish it, and that's just one tiny beach, right? They are more than the sand, and, and this is even a desert climate. He doesn't even have to go to a beach. He walks out his door, and there's sand everywhere. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Right? God's wondrous deeds are more than we can even tell of. And then that second phrase of verse 18 says, I awake and I am still with you. And that was like, what does, what's that? doing there um and there are different commentators had different opinions on that some said well maybe david was writing this psalm and he fell asleep in the middle of it and he just woke up here and he said oh i awake and i am still with you well it seems kind of strange um and then there were some who say well maybe he's speaking of just when I go to bed and I go to sleep and I am unconscious to the world around me, God is still there. When I awake, God is still there. Or maybe he's talking of even in death, right? Sometimes scripture talks about death as sleep, right? And so then if you are 
If you sleep in death when you awake from that sleep, you are now present with the God with God if you know him, if you are in Christ. So I don't land on a solid place of how to interpret that other than God is present everywhere. We are never separated from God, whether in death, whether in life, whether in sleeping or waking. Like God is present everywhere in all circumstances. When you can go to sleep and not have to worry because you know that God is in control of things. Not something is not going to happen while you are asleep that God is not in control of. In verse 19, so these are the the fun verses, right? And I was like, oh, what am I going to do with this, right? Um, talks about slaying the wicked and how David hates people. Like, oh, we're Christians. We're supposed to be super nice, right? Like, how do you do that? But I... Get a feel for what David's pointing at, right? You look at how this God that he has described in the previous 18 verses. Powerful, not powerful, like worthy of worship, not worthy of worship. So what somebody who is against that God, what should your what should the attitude towards them be? Like she'd be like, Well, you know, if you want to do that, that's okay for you, but I'm gonna do this. Like, well, there's a line drawn in the sand, right? Those who hate God are against God. Like, it's, it's not a light thing. Um, in Isaiah 11, chapter 4, it talks about Christ's reign. And it says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And that's of Christ. Right? He is going to judge righteously. He will show equity for the meek. But the wicked will, desert, will receive their just punishment. This is justice being met out. And that is what David is calling for. I want to see your justice, Lord. Um, David's love for God is such that he hates sin. He wants no part with evil or those characterized by evil. In verse 20, it says, They speak against you, speaking of these men of blood, these evil men. It says, They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Right? This God that David has just described. And he's done it so wonderfully, but at the same time, he said, I can't, I, my words still are not good enough. And you're just too wonderful for me. Uh, it's just too high. And yet there are those who take their stand against God. And they speak against God. They're so bold that they do it maliciously. Um, and even in Psalm 6, 8, David said, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Right? So David didn't want to be surrounded by evil men. He wanted that out of his life. In Psalm 26, 5, it says, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Um, he hates sin so much, he despises those who are set against God. 
He loathes them, as it says in verse 21. And in verse 22, it says, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David does not take a position of neutrality against evil. He doesn't say, well, they want to go do terrible things. Like, that's, that's them. And, but I'm going to do my thing over here. Right? He's like, no, I, I hate that. It is terrible. I hate them with a complete hatred. It's very strong words. I count them my enemies. Right? Uh, after Josh preached through Samuel about David, do you desire to be David's enemy or one of David's uh, compatriots? Right? David is a formidable guy. And he, so he counts them as his enemies. Not a good place to be. So he is not neutral. He is not an ally of those who are wicked. He wants that out of his life. In verse 23 it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. It points back towards the beginning of verse 1 where it said, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Right. So God is the only one who truly knows the intentions of our heart. So he says, all these things that I do, you know my intentions. Search me out, find me, convict me in areas where my intentions are not right. Know my heart, know my thoughts. He desires to be closer to God. He doesn't want to have hidden things. Um, in Proverbs 17.3, it speaks of refining, being made pure. It says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Painting a picture of, so you put the silver in the crucible and you're able to pull off the dross and you have pure silver. And the same thing with the gold, you heat it and pull off the, the bad stuff and you have pure gold. In much the same way, the Lord tests hearts. He refines the hearts. He drives the sin out. And that is David's desire. Find those wicked things in me and make them go away. And verse 24 says... And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He wants, help me to know my sin, and lead me to repentance. Find those things within me that I'm still holding on to, and drive them out. Psalm 16.11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Right? So he wants to dwell in God's presence. He wants to know that pleasure of being with God. And part of that is having that sin drawn out, removed from him, to experience that joy of the Lord, that fullness of the Lord. So, what do we make of this? these 24 verses? Right, We have... We have that God is all-knowing, right? We can hide nothing from him. And we have that he is present everywhere. Um, you cannot escape him. And then we see God's power also displayed in the creation of that little baby, the wonder of life. Um, he paints this picture of who God is, and that's just a small portion of who God is. Um, which points to us, you, when you, under, you get a grasp, 
I don't know if we can fully understand who God is, but once you gain some understanding of God, who God is, and we realize, who am I? How can I stand before God? I cannot stand before him in my own righteousness, right? I listened to some street preachers and they'll ask people like, where are you going to go when you die? Like, oh, I think I'll go to heaven because uh, yeah, I'm a good person. I do good things. And they eventually draw out through the law and then find that they're a sinner, right? Even the simplest things. Oh, yes, I have told lies. Yes, I have stole. But, it, you know, it wasn't a big thing. Like, well, one lie is enough, right? You cannot stand before God in your own righteousness because you have none. And so knowing that God is good, we can hide nothing from him, right? You have sins that are maybe secret in your life that you think are hidden. They are not hidden from God. And this should convict us of our sin, right? It should lead us to want to become right with God, um, to repent, to confess that sin to God and turn from it. Right? The sin separates us from God. And the only thing that can bring us into right relationship with God is the blood of Christ. And with that, we can now stand before God in hope, clothed in Christ's righteousness. Um, and if you have not placed your faith in Christ's righteousness, I would encourage you to do so. Um, and you're any of us here would be happy to talk to you about that. But that is what this is ultimately pointing towards, is our unworthiness before God. And for those who are in Christ, I like to look at those last, that last section where David is showing his hatred for sin, and we, I think we can apply that to our own lives and say, what sins do I have in my life that I am tolerating? that I am just letting hang out here, this is my own little thing, and I should be desiring to be rid of it. Um, becoming what is known as sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, killing sin. John Owen has said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Um, if you are not ridding sin from your life, then you are becoming more sinful. There's no neutral ground with sin. It's you are either in it or you are fleeing from it. Um, but it also means that as believers, we don't live constantly tormented by our sin. Now, we are trying to kill sin, yet at the same time when we sin, we know there is forgiveness. And we can rest in knowing that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That when we stand before God, he sees Christ's righteousness on us. In spite of us knowing all the terrible things that we still do. But we should be trying to kill that sin. Um, but we can stand before God forgiven and rejoicing in that. So I'll close in a word of prayer and we'll have a, another hymn. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word, the wonderful truths that are revealed in it. Um, praise you that you are such a wonderful and amazing God that you are not like us, that we cannot fully comprehend you, and yet you still love us. Um, help us to desire to be more like Christ and to work towards that in our lives and to rely on Christ for our, for our hope. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your hymn books to hymn number 470. We're going to sing the first and second verse only. During the second verse, if the deacons would come and prepare for communion. Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please Him in all that I do, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free, this pathway of blessing for me. O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee, for Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master, my life be thy throne, my life I give henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. Living for Jesus, who died in my place, bearing on Calvary my sin and disgrace. Such love constrains me to answer His call. Demand His leading and give Him my all. Oh, Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee, for Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master, my heart shall be Thy throne, my life I give henceforth to live. Oh, Christ, for Thee alone. As we prepare for communion, as I thought about it, I looked at First uh, Corinthians 11 and we know that they were getting together and they were feasting and they weren't caring for each other. They weren't showing love to each other and taking care of each other's needs and making sure that the poor had plenty to eat when the rich had lots to eat. Uh, they were not showing the kind of love that God wanted them to show. And he talks about that in doing communion and that we need to know that we are okay with each other, that we love each other. We don't have things that are in the way of caring for each other. And there are times in our lives when we need to take care of those, and that would be part of what he's talking about here. But he talks about the communion, and then he, at the end, says, but let a person look carefully at himself, and in that spirit, eat of the bread and drink from the cup. 
Whoever eats and drinks without uh, a complete appreciation of the body of Christ eats and drinks to his own condemnation. And why I come to that, I think that many times we don't think about and have our heart in a place where we're really coming to Jesus because we know he loves us and that we love him. And that we're coming together as a body to do this, to show our love to him and to each other. We get lost in just the fact that we're just having communion. We don't want to miss communion. But what we need to think about is why are we doing communion? And so we as a body can remember what Christ did for us. That we can remember and partake together and have nothing in the way of our relationship with God or each other. So as you take, you want to think about those things. And I lost my page. And prepare to uh, yourself to be with the Lord, to talk about this with the Lord as we pray about and compare what we're doing. So I'll find the passage. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, you are an amazing God. We ponder what Christ did, planned before the foundation of the earth for him to come and die for our sin. To shed his blood that we might be cleansed, to rise again, to give us life. To use his righteousness as our cloak so we are dressed in righteousness. Father, it's so hard to comprehend all this. Christ did for us. But we are grateful. And as we do this, help us to do this in the right frame of, of mind and of heart. That Lord, we love you for what you've done. And that we're here to remember that until the day that we meet with you and can do it with you in glory. So help us today as we partake, give you the glory as we partake of the bread and of the cup that we might do it in a way that would honor and glorify you. In your son's name.
1 Corinthians 11, where I was reading from, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body broken for me. This do in remembrance of me. Similarly, also, he took the cup after they had stopped, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do, as of, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death till it comes. Drink the all Gracious Father, we're so thankful for your goodness. 
We're thankful that we can take this time to remember you and appreciate all that you've done for us. Now as we go out, help us to apply your scripture to our life, to especially be so awed by you and so loved by you that we just want to become the kind of people you want us to become, that we might be like Christ. Teach us and help us to grow. Lord, help us to celebrate in a way that would cause you to be the center of all our celebrations. Thankful even for this life you've given us in this country to be free to serve and follow you. Help us as we go to rejoice in Christ. Amen. <laughs>